Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the Emily Program, where we put it all together for you. Piecemeal discusses topics related to eating disorders, body image issues, and how society may contribute to distorted thinking. Please keep in mind that we may discuss difficult topics, and we ask that you use your own discretion when listening, and that you speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lampert. Today, we're thrilled to sit down with author Emily Layden to chat about her eating disorder, her novel, All Girls, and what each can tell us about how our culture understands eating disorders. Emily is a writer and a former high school English teacher from upstate New York. A graduate of Stanford University, her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Marie Claire, The Billfold, and Runner's World. Her debut novel, All Girls, is out now, and you trust me, you're going to want to read it. Thank you so much for being here, Emily. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, we're just thrilled to have you. Uh, so before we talk about your awesome novel and the, and the process of writing and sharing that story, which I'm really interested in getting to, let's start with your personal story. We understand that an eating disorder has been part of that. And can you tell us a bit about your eating disorder? How did it show up? How did it feel? And how did it look in your life? Yeah, absolutely. So I was a Division One athlete in college. Um, I played lacrosse at Stanford. And I had the kind of athletic childhood and adolescence that usually accompanies that kind of achievement. I was competitive and ambitious and extremely physically active from a very young age. You know, we're talking like 10 or 11. And in the fall of my sophomore year at Stanford, I developed an overuse injury that required two surgeries and nine months away from my sport. And so all of a sudden, I just couldn't train at the level I was used to. And it was, you know, like the rug was ripped out from under me. And I can see now that the restricting that manifested almost immediately upon diagnosis was not just about calibrating for missed workouts and that I was, you know, very likely depressed. Because when so much of your identity is bound up in how you use your body, and then suddenly you can't do that, you know, suddenly you don't have the control over it that you're used to having, that's a really hard thing. But I didn't have all the language for it then, right? I, this is something I've been able to sort of piece together, right, in doing the work around my mental health. But just like I couldn't have articulated as that in that way at the time, I also really didn't have the language for describing like the notion of comorbidities, right? Or co-occurring disorders. Like it just, you know, this was 2009, right? Which really, really was a different time in the way we talked about some of these things. And so I didn't, I also didn't fully understand my own relationship to my anxiety and to my obsessive thoughts. And so even when I healed from my injury, I, and I could physically return to my sport, I had developed through my eating disorder a new output for my anxiety and my obsessive thoughts, right? So while the injury was really the eating disorders inciting incident, all those habits of restricting and purging that I picked up immediately upon diagnosis really stayed with me into my mid-20s. And so even when I stopped really exhibiting symptoms, you know, I, I think the thing I'm still working on, right, is that sometimes I still find that when I'm anxious or when I'm obsessing, that those thoughts can still latch onto food or to my body. But now I have different language and different skills to sort of talk back to that. Yeah, absolutely. I think so many people can relate to that experience of, of having the behaviors be different and having that piece 
feel so much better and, and still having a, a brain that is more, a little more anxious and a little more obsessive than the average you know, person, depending on what your average is. Uh, and, and finding that thoughts about food or activity or moving or, or any of that are, are just sort of over there. And that, that well-traveled highway is sometimes easy to, to, uh, to see in the distance. But that doesn't mean we have to attach to it. It's, a, it's an opportunity to see how far you've come in a way. Yes. Mm-hmm. So we know that you know, eating disorders affect people of all, all types. You know, and we know that they're particularly prevalent among uh, female, particularly adolescents, young adults, of course, across the age spectrum. But we know a lot of people experience the beginnings of the eating disorder during that time. And, and we know that that's a population you've spent a lot of time with as a former teacher. Uh, how did or does your, your work with, with younger girls and women relate to your eating disorder story? And, and how has that work impacted your recovery or your healing? Yeah, so I think there's really kind of two parts to this question, right? There's like the practical reality of serving as a role model to young women every day and what that did to my relationship to food. And then there's sort of the psychological or emotional practice of mentoring and how that translated to helping me work through the shame and confusion that I still carried about my own eating disorder. So I'll tell you a story. In my classroom, I always kept I always kept candy around. I had like a you know just like a a bin. <laughs> Sometimes like I would just be lazy and keep it in the bag and not even like put it in the actual like jar. And usually like at the end of the day, um, you know around around two thirty two forty five when like ev- nobody really wants to work on their homework in study hall anymore, the girls would they knew where I kept the candy. They would come and hover around my desk and together we would like pick through cheap chocolate and just like talk about nothing right like it was the most just low-key time that turns out to be the most meaningful and I remember that one of my students one one day long after the fact told me that the first time she saw me unwrap a piece of cheap candy with them that it was a revelation, right? She thought she eats that because eating cheap candy didn't fit with her understanding of me as this sort of, you know, externally successful, high achieving young woman. And you know, you know as a teacher that you're that you're always being watched, right? Like and not just for like your ability to write a thesis statement. So when I would eat candy with the girls or cupcakes at the class birthday party, um, or even just, you know, sometimes kids would eat in my classroom and so I'd be eating lunch with them. In some way, that work was more important work than teaching them about how to write an essay. But I didn't really realize until, I really want to say like fairly recently, that when I unwrapped that candy and ate with the girls because I was hanging out with them and I was on some level aware of the fact of normalizing eating candy for them, that it was also, I was also normalizing it for myself. It wasn't just good for the girls to see me do that. It was really good practice for me. So that's part one, right? Like the actual like job of like being a teacher and trying to do to do good modeling, right? 
but the other part is really about working through shame and exhibiting self-compassion. For a long time, even after, you know, the, the last time I purged, I was 23. The last time I kept a food diary, I was 24. But even for a long time after that, I'm 32 now for reference, I still really sort of struggled with like the ghosts of my, of my eating disorder. I just couldn't make sense of it in my head. But working with my students, every day I just had boundless empathy for them. You know, I, I knew that one of the best things I could do as a teacher and a mentor was just sit with their feelings, just listen to them, just validate. And just like practicing, normalizing eating candy or the cupcake, exercising compassion with my students became a way of exercising compassion for myself. I realized slowly if these 17 and 18 year olds deserved it, I, my 18 year old self also deserved that. Absolutely. You know, it's kind of a cliche to say, right, that I, I think teachers say all the time that like you learn more from your students than they do from you. But I think that is exceptionally true in this case for me. Yeah, it is a, it is a bit of magic. That, <laughs> that relationship between influential adults who don't realize how influential they're being and, and young people who maybe don't even realize how much they're looking to those adults to be influential. It's, a, it's really a beautiful thing. So while you're teaching in the middle of all that sort of beautiful realization or not, or just practice, just the doing of beautiful life, you wrote this book in the middle of all that. So tell us about All Girls. Yeah. So the novel begins as an alumna of the All Girls Atwater School has come forward with an allegation of sexual assault. And the story unfolds over the course of a single academic year as the school and its inhabitants react to this accusation. The book employs a kind of linked structure with each chapter told from a different character's perspective as she navigates the kind of like social mores of prep school life against this backdrop of sexual violence and institutional non-transparency. And all the while, the acts of a kind of vigilante prankster threaten to undermine the school's efforts to quash the scandal, really raising questions about Atwater's role as a protector and defender of young women. It's a, and it's, it's an intriguing story. It's, I love that each chapter brought you to a different facet of the, of the story and so much brought you close to each of those people. What, what parallels do you see between each of the, the experiences of each of the book's characters and, and eating disorder experiences in general, or, or even just cultural experiences in a cultural sense, because there's, there's sort of the, the eating disorder specifics that are body image and how we look and how we appear and if we're successful, but then there's this larger cultural sense of what does it mean to, to be successful and to, to be okay and to be, you know, right, quote unquote, if there's ever a right. Right, yeah, right, right. <laughs> you know, I wrote this book because I wanted to write something that took really seriously the experience of teenage girlhood in kind of all its depth and capacity. You know, as a, as a teacher, my supervisors would often comment that 
you know, in my like evaluations or whatever, they would say that I took my students really seriously, meaning that I guess I treated them and their ideas as like worthy and valid and thought of them as scholars. And, you know, kind of like you say about the mentoring, right? I didn't even know I was doing that, right? Like I didn't know that there was any other way to be or to interact with my students. But the fact that it was noteworthy to my supervisors really says something about how we think about teenage girls as a society, right? I think that there's this whole culture that says that girls are not really whole people and that thinks that they are trivial and overly emotional or that seeks to commodify their bodies and their tastes too, right? without actually really giving them any agency. And I think we see a lot of that same flattening with our cultural thinking about eating disorders. We have a really hard time taking them seriously, seeing them as mental illnesses, understanding them as a whole range of experiences. And so I think there's this real relationship between our diminishment of the teenage girl and, and the fact that they are particularly prevalent among adolescent women and therefore our cultural difficulty legitimizing them as a major mental health concern. Yeah, I really resonate with what you said about the sort of commoditization of them. Like there's this market there that gets so exploited and uh, exploited sort of in ways of getting, uh, you know, girls pitted against each other and all the unfortunate negativity that comes from that. So I'm sure we could talk about that for, for a long time. That's, a, that's another conversation. But when we think about the disordered eating aspect that you've brought into this, into this story, so one of the characters in the book, Macy, struggles with disordered eating. And, and, and we learn that you know, not from, from graphic descriptions or mentions of her weight, which are sometimes how we learn about characters struggling with disordered eating in books. So I, I really appreciate, particularly appreciate that you did not approach it that way. But rather, we learn about it by way of her anxiety and the way that she tries to cope with it or manage the anxiety with behaviors around food and, and exercising. But why was it important to you to include Macy's anxiety in discussions about her disordered eating? I love Macy so much. You know, right, as you say, she struggles with clinical anxiety and with obsessive thoughts. And that is what I wanted to write about most of all. I wanted to write about the experience of co-occurring disorders, about how eating disorders often happen with other conditions, right? Macy is anxious, you see in her chapter, about so many things entirely unrelated to her body or to food. But she copes with that anxiety through avoidant and restrictive behaviors. Like we see here, she eats only safe foods, foods of a certain color. And I think, as you say, when we so often when we have a depiction of an eating disorder on TV or in literature, it tends to be this very narrow reflection of the experience. And I just wanted to write a character who might help to broaden what we saw when we think uh, eating disorder. Yeah, I, I so appreciate that. I think it's, it, it's desperately needed in our literature, in our film, in our, in our storytelling, because 
we know that eating disorders impact people all across all sorts of spectrums. So to really have a character that's much to me felt like, you know, as somebody who's a, a clinician working with people with eating disorders and also somebody who's recovered from an eating disorder felt like, oh yeah, this is more, there's more depth here. There's more reality. There's more truth here. So I really appreciated that. I, I, at one point in the book, one of Macy's peers cites the Virginia Woolf quote that she feels relates to Macy's experience. And that quote is about the the pain of being locked in. That's a poignant quote from a, a room of one's own. And we we often hear people describe their eating disorders in that way, that they're, they feel like a prisoner, they feel like they're trapped, they feel like it feels that way. Um, how can we help people to understand better that, you know, the eating disorder isn't just a, you know, people often think of it like a behavior problem gone wrong or somebody's just trying to control their life. Uh, it's really this perspective of, I feel whatever, anxious, obsessive, a combination of all of those. I feel depression. I feel overwhelmed. I feel all sorts of things. And I think we also hear people describe that as they change their eating, they feel less of that, which feels good, right? They feel less out of control, except they feel more trapped now. So say a little bit more about that experience, either for you personally, or as you think about it with Macy, how does that, what was your, um, and I think we feel your efforts to describe that. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that sort of like, I feel better because I'm in control, but I feel really trapped and that feels really terrible at the same time. Yeah. So I think that with Macy, she uses, she latches on to the experience of initiation. The initiation is a for, for the audience or for the listeners, initiation is this, it's exactly what it sounds like, a, a light hazing ritual at Atwater, but the freshmen don't know what it is. And that not knowing is a trigger for Macy. Um, she can't bear to not know. And she becomes at one point really obsessive about trying to figure out what initiation is. She goes down a whole like internet rabbit hole on reddit forums like reading all of these the worst case scenario things right it's just like when you you know when you google i have a sniffle and suddenly you have cancer right same thing i what i what fiction allows you to do unlike on screen sometimes unlike in real life it allows you to be fully inside a character's head and so the gift of being able to write Macy is that I could unravel that experience for my reader. I know exactly what it's like to get caught up in that tornado, that like thought treadmill, whatever endless metaphor we want to use. And I wanted to write that in the hopes that that can be part of what we understand when we think about eating disorders, right? And it's funny, I'll also just share that, and I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but I thought that Macy's relationship to food might get edited out of the book. There is often a reaction in literature or in media Oh, girl with an eating disorder. This is boring, cliche. We've, we've heard this already. We don't need this. And so I just, even as I was writing her, I was like, you know, 
I might not, this might not fly. Someone might say that this is overdone, cliche. And, and it didn't in part because I have a wonderful editor who understands exactly what I'm trying to do. But I think also in part because I didn't write what we usually see, which is not to say that I wrote what is not the common experience. And so I think the more we can just make space for these, these stories to exist, that's, that will help, that will help people heal. That will help the conversation that will help us move the culture along a little bit to meet the reality. Absolutely. Oh, I'm so, that's so powerful. And I'm so glad it didn't get edited out. That's just heartbreaking to think it wouldn't have been in there. So that's fantastic for, uh, on your editor's part and, and on you for recognizing the importance of that, because I, I, I just think that's so important that we see different, more realistic, more common, like you said, we might not see it as common, but it is common <laughs> to have those experiences. So how have readers responded to, you know, obviously we're in love with Macy and, and, and with you, and, uh, but how have readers responded to Macy and her struggle with anxiety and eating? So it's a perfect segue, actually, because just as I thought that Macy's experience might get edited out, I thought that nobody would understand Macy. I, I did not think she would be a character that resonated. And wow, have I been surprised. People love her. She is one of the two most commented upon characters every time I do a book event. And I just, I did not expect that at all. I thought she was too messy, too young, too complicated. I thought that she would be really misunderstood. And I realized maybe that I projected onto Macy a whole way of thinking about eating disorders that is just so deeply ingrained, right? Like I, I just, I, I, I thought that perhaps what I had exercised upon myself as a 19, 20 year old would happen to this 15 year old character. But it just, it hasn't been that way at all. And that makes me really, really hopeful that we can tell these stories, that they will find an audience, that we can slowly broaden that audience and have a more productive conversation about eating disorders and mental illness. Right, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that's, we know that people need to be able to relate to a story or see themselves in the story or see something that's familiar in the story to really have it feel more applicable. And, and I, I think you've done that so beautifully here. And it sounds like that's, we are not the only ones to think that. So that is fantastic. Um, I think about, you know, thinking of Macy and, and, and your readers who are, are, you know, what we would expect to be a, a fairly wide range of people who will pick up this book, thinking of readers who maybe relate to her in their younger selves or relate to her in their children that they might see in in Macy or to the other characters struggling with the, their own issues you know that that there are certainly other aspects of some of your other characters that we may routinely dismiss or you know discount because as you said in the beginning we just sort of discount a lot of the experience of young women thinking of your younger self or those readers that are reading and seeing themselves there or seeing a loved one there, what words of wisdom or comfort would you give people 
in that time of struggle or anxiety? What, what do you hope that you have said to those young women or what would you like to have heard as that young person? Uh, what would you say now? It's so funny because I still don't feel qualified to give anyone any advice at all ever. <laughs> I don't know if that goes away. <laughs> and, and sometimes I think we're not ready to receive advice. I think that what I might say is that if you are listening to this podcast, if you are showing up for thinking about yourself and your experience or the experience of your children or a loved one in this way, right? If you're tapping into a resource that maybe that is that is good enough for where you are right now and that that sort of attention just to this experience is is a, is really is really good work and it's okay if you don't you aren't ready to take any advice i might give and also maybe because i'm not giving it but but that showing up even just dipping your toes in is still really valuable yeah absolutely so where can people learn more about you and find a copy of all girls so they can catch up with us and meet Macy and the other characters. Yeah, please do. Um, so you can find all girls anywhere you might get your books. Although I'm sure your indie bookstore would really appreciate your business, especially in these times. And you can find me online at emilyladen.com or on Instagram at Laden. Fabulous. Are there, I can't resist asking you, are there, is there another book that you're working on? What's next for Emily? <laughs> I am working on another novel. I tend to be a little protective of the ideas until they're more ready to share, but I can say that I'm still interested in, in girlhood as an experience. So. Fantastic. Well, we look forward to reading that one too when it comes out. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you for writing this beautiful piece of literature. Thank you for contributing to this conversation and sharing your your experience with us on this podcast and, and through your writing. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for all the work that you do at the Emily program. It's really important. Awesome. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you'd like to learn more about the Emily program and what we do, visit emilyprogram.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Emily Program. Peace Meal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Thanks for listening.